Hello, I'm David Turner and this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. In this episode, the editor of Lunar Poetry Magazine, Paul McMenemy, is chatting to the good folk at English Pen about the work they do translating literature into English, um, particularly work by writers at risk. The episode opens with a reading of Ashraf Fayad's poem, A Space in the Void. Yeah, I'll be back at the end with some more information as to how you can find out more about English Pen and other topics covered in the chat. Enjoy. In November 2015, poet and curator Ashraf Fayad was sentenced to death in Saudi Arabia for apostasy. The charges relate to his 2008 collection of poetry, Instructions Within. The following poem, A Space in the Void, translated by Jonathan White, is one of the poems that led to Ashraf's detention. Everything has weight. Your weight is well known to the back walls because your heavy shadow doesn't give the asphalt, the paint, or the writing stuck on the windows a chance to appear. You also have space, significant space, in the void. The air is polluted and the dumpsters are too, and your soul too, ever since it got mixed up with carbon, and your heart, ever since the arteries were blocked and it refused to grant citizenship to the blood coming back from your head. Without your memory, you'd lose much of your weight. You need to follow a proper diet to lose more of you. Make up your mind quickly because the Earth's gravity doesn't wait long. Hint, replace the time factor with your name so that you find the right way to throw the last page of your diary right into the rubbish bin. You consume enough air for two newborn babies if the screaming was equal given that the air molecules around you carry sand badly and your throat needs repairing. A beggar woman of more than 50 displays her dignity in a rag studded with coins. She prays that you and that pretty woman who happens to be walking beside you will soon be blessed with a child to fill another part of the void in return for a coin. The time has come for you to pick up the pace, not sexually, and for you to change your smelly socks. A scientific fact, bacteria grow rapidly, so come to sleep, because the time has come for you to melt and dissolve, to take the shape agreed for the alien nation into which you have been poured. Evaporate, condense, and go back to your void to occupy your usual space in the U. Thanks very much. Um, hello and welcome to the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is Paul McMenemy and today I'm joined by Kat Lucas, who you just heard reading a poem by Ashraf Fayad and Robert Sharp from English Pen. Thanks for joining me. Thanks Thanks for having us. Um, I suppose uh, the first thing to ask would be, what is English Pen? Uh, Yes, so English Pen is the founding centre of Pen International. Uh, I suppose we have to describe what Pen International is now. (laughs) Uh, It's an international association, a fellowship of writers. And as I say, English Pen is the founding centre, the organisation... Uh, was set up in London in 1921 uh, by the novelist, uh, Nobel uh, Literature Laureate John Galsworthy and a friend of his called Amy Dawson Scott, who was the networker of the day. She was very well connected to all the writers in London. And it began as just a a forum, uh, a club for writers to talk about literature Uh, because writing is a very solitary profession. And they quickly realised that if they were interested in literature from around the world, literature across frontiers, 
that they they had to fight for literature across frontiers and to break down the barriers of literature across frontiers. And it's that uh, that sensibility that that's the underpinning value um, of the pen network. There are about 140 centres in 110 countries. There's some um, um, electronic networks um, of, 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 of writers who live in different countries as well as country-based centres. And uh, what all the centres have in common is this, um, is this love of literature across frontiers. And today in London in 2016, we still fight to break down those frontiers. So we, uh, we fight censorship we and laws that are a barrier to, to speaking or to, to writing but we break down the other barriers to literature as well language is a, a huge barrier to literature what if your favorite poem or your favorite novelist is written in a language you don't understand uh, so we have a, a, a major translation program which is funded by arts council england uh, to bring the very best world literature into the English language. And we also run a lot of outreach and literacy projects uh, for people who might not have tried reading or tried writing um, and in the hope that they will uh, uh, increase their own freedom of expression through uh, either through, through reading the words of others or, or through trying themselves or, or a bit of both. And then we also run literary events um, so that there are no... No, there's no spatial barriers, there's no space between uh, the very best writers from around the world and, and the audience who might want to, to interact with them, to, to ask them questions uh, about their work. So although we run projects in many different areas, so outreach and communities, translation and literature and also freedom of expression, they're all grounded by this idea of, of breaking down the barriers to, to literature, to, to reading and writing. So we're mainly going to be talking um, today about um, writers at risk. Mm. And we heard it start um, a poem by Ashraf Fayad, who, um, as Kat said, is currently imprisoned. Um, so can you explain a little bit more about um, your campaigns um, for writers at risk and what exactly you do? Yeah, so... Writers at Risk is obviously a quite broad term and has actually been made broader in recent years. Um, the programme nominally started or more officially started in the 1960s and was originally called Writers in Prison. It was very much focused on writers who had been in prison for what they had written. As the decades have passed, we have seen more and more instances of people being threatened or forced into exile. Um, so there are, there are so many different ways in which a writer can be silenced um, and so I think we broadened it beyond just this idea of writers being in prison that's one extreme extreme kind of case but uh, there's a lot there's a lot of other ways that writers can be silenced and when we talk about writers we're not specifically talking about novelists or poets we're talking about any sort of literary professional that might be a translator it might be an editor equally journalists are obviously very much in the firing line um, but in the last decade or so, as the internet has become more and more a part of our everyday lives, our, so our case list has expanded and we now have bloggers. I've just been um, looking at a case today, Nabil Rajab, who's in prison in Bahrain for tweeting. So writing has now become something that 
everyone can access more readily and that in turn has led to us having a lot more cases that we need to be campaigning on behalf of and working with. One of the writers you um, campaign for who's been getting a lot of attention in the press um, is Rafe Badawi, who's um, primarily known um, for his blog. Yeah, I suppose that shows how these things have changed. And that's absolutely right. And last year we were involved in something called Blog Action Day. And I think the thing, as I said, I think because we know we can publish things very, very rapidly. I mean, Robert and I have self-published some collections of writing by writers at risk. So but the possibility is there for so many more people, but that obviously means that so many more people are in danger. So, I think blogging is also the... 21st century way of, of pamphleteering a um, uh, hundred years ago or uh, 200 years ago the, the radicals who developed ideas of, of free speech were handing out cranking out uh, libels and bills um, from a kind of home printing press um, and handing them out on the street then you know a few years ago we had we had fanzines or some sort of that um, underground photocopied literature and uh, yeah, in the 21st century, the way to do that is, is to have, have a blog, <laughs> but it's still on the same spectrum. It's still the same, the same underlying uh, activity going on, which is speaking truth to power, saying things, writing things that the king, in the case of Saudi Arabia, or, or the president, uh, or maybe the religious authorities, uh, or big business, um, anyone with power, uh, and influence and money might not want you to say. Um, so Rafe Padari is in, um, although he's doing something very modern, uh, is is part of a, a long tradition that goes back centuries. And the, I think the irony of Rafe's case in particular, but we see this a lot, is we would never have known about him. We would never have read his work. Even you know, he was arrested more than four years ago now, it wasn't until he was publicly flogged outside the mosque that people started to sit up and pay attention. His book has now been published in at least two or three European languages and has been widely read by people around the world. And it, it seems almost funny if it wasn't so depressing that they've essentially given him this platform that he wouldn't have ever had. And the introduction to his collection of blogs, he does state he, could, he never imagined that it would be collected into an anthology, even in Arabic, and now his words are all over the world. So I think you know, despots would be better advised to let let their uh, bloggers speak, and actually they potentially have less impact. It's it, yeah, it's it's a it's a paradox. It's it's confusing, but I mean, it's it's good that we it's good that we have read his his words, and yeah, as Kat said, it, it is an act of of solidarity, and it does give him a voice um, it does um, alleviate to some small degree the the inconvenience uh, that he's going through um, and then oh, in a sort of I don't know it's sort of <laughs> philosophical way when you're when you're reciting the words of another person they are they are speaking and the same thoughts that were running through their head when they they wrote down, the words, uh, maybe they've been translated before you read them out loud again or, or read them in a book again, but the same sentiments, the same values, um, the same thoughts uh, sort of crackling along your synapses as were, um, were 
crackling along his or hers when, when they wrote it. Um, so, yeah, in a very real way, the simple act of reading the poetry of these people is, is defying the senses and, and giving these people a voice once again. On a more pragmatic level, it does give, uh, it does give them succour. It, it is an act of solidarity and comfort. Um, and we do know that Rafe Badawi and Ashraf Fayyad and the others whose, whose poetry we read uh, at demos and, and protests uh, do get to hear about it. Um, they might see a picture or, or watch a video on YouTube or, or something like that. And so even though they're far away, uh, the power of the internet <laughs> means that very quickly um, word will get to them that in, in London or in Berlin or in New York or in Sydney, um, someone, has, someone has given them a voice. Um, and time and time again, and this is, this is completely what motivates uh, me and, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Kat, is we, 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 hear them, we hear them say how useful it was um, to them uh, and comforting to them. So yeah, the, f- the first thing that you're, we can encourage your listeners to do is to check out these poets, um, read them in translation. Um, if your listeners uh, do speak another language, um, a wonderful act of, of solidarity would be to translate some more poems from these people uh, into, into the English language. Doesn't have to be from Arabic and Saudi Arabia. We, we name your language, and we will find you a poet uh, who's in trouble in that language, um, who needs a voice, and and that uh, that act of of writerly solidarity. One writer speaking to another, one writer interacting, doing something on behalf of another writer, is is something that we we champion and encourage. Uh, and yeah, we'd love for your we, your listeners to, to do some of that. It's it's a, a wonderful way to to do some activism, but also uh, be creative and perhaps actually develop your own creative practice. I suppose one of the difficulties is finding these works in the first place. In a lot of cases, whether you um, whether you speak another language or not, simply trying to find things mm. in the um, sort of morass of the internet so I know that you have some links and so on on your website but I mean I don't know if you have any other ways of but wherever possible we will try to either publish translations by the cases we're working on behalf of or link to places where they're available Um, because I think for us it's it's all well and good to sort of relate the details of a a case and the specifics of what they've been charged with Mm -hmm. but actually the thing that gets people fired up and, and empathising uh, with those individuals is, is reading their own work, often actually seeing a photograph of them or perhaps with their family. I think it's creating this fuller character, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, in a lot of cases it is very cool to track down um, even original writings. We've put together, well, English Pen's been involved with a couple of anthologies, so there's historically there's work from cases that we've worked on over the last 50 years available. But what we've done in the past, uh, so for example, we had a case in Cameroon, poet and historian who was in prison for several years, um, who'd written an amazing collection of prison poetry, which we were sent it's a couple of years ago now. Um, and we actually just put a call out on Twitter asking people to 
if they were French French speakers um, to get in, in touch if they were interested in perhaps translating one of his poems. Um, and we had an amazing response. Mm. And within, I think, a few months, we've been able to collate these these translations, some of which have been done by professional translators, some of which have been done by aspiring translations. So again, it was encouraging them to, to do this sort of work as well. But, um, we were able to publish a little collection of money raised from that was then able to, you know, we sent that back to Eno to support him. Um, so if stuff isn't available, there is, as Rob said, get involved with translating it. It's, this is the best way of, of spreading the word about these cases and getting people talking about them and, and writing about them. I mean, this is something we're going to be doing at Ledbury Festival where we've, uh, we've had, I think, over 25 poets performing at Ledbury with five of our current cases of, con- case of concern, including Ashraf Fayyad. Um, and they'll quite simply be reading either a short poem or an extract of one of the poems during their events at Ledbury. A very short biography, there's, there's no further action. Lots of the writers involved are already writing to the poets they've been paired with, but it, it is that moment where people have come to an event to see perhaps Ruby Robinson reading, and there will just be a moment when she is giving a voice to someone who has been silenced for five or six years because they're under house arrest and I think that it's extraordinarily powerful uh, Another thing we, we do and I think we might go on to talk about this in a moment but yeah another thing we do is if if not enough poems are available another way of showing solidarity is to write a poem about that person and we did a wonderful event I can say it was an absolutely brilliant and wonderful event because I was not responsible for programming it but Kat uh, sitting next to me was uh, with uh, Stephen Fowler, uh, the, the avant-garde poet, uh, and his Enemies Project. And um, yes, yeah, Stephen brought together uh, dozens of, of poets to write in, in response to the plight of people like Ashraf Farhad, Raif Badawi, um, and, and as I say, dozens of others. Uh, what I love about that project is, again, this fact that although it's solidarity, and campaigning and raising awareness, we are also putting more literature, new literature into the world. And and the experiences of these people from Saudi Arabia, from Azerbaijan, from Burma, are informing and enhancing our literary culture here in the United Kingdom. So there's a real sense of dialogue um, with that project in particular uh, that, that Stephen was able to, to foster between the poem, the, 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 the embattled poets, the persecuted, prosecuted poets around the world um, and the uh, maybe slightly more comfortable um, poets, <laughs> certainly politically <laughs> and security-wise um, here in the UK. So, uh, yeah, just watching that that event unfold uh, and watching back all the all the poems being performed on YouTube um, made me immensely proud to be to be a part of Penn um, and Kat I, I, I hope we do more of that <laughs> well we've, we've already got a date in the diary for next year brilliant but, um, yeah I think I mean the thing that really struck me was the responses from the British writers or the writers based in the UK who pretty much unanimously said it was the hardest thing they'd ever had to write. And the pieces were incredible. I think the first piece I was rolling about on the floor laughing and then most of the rest of the day I was in floods of tears. But 
it, it was incredibly powerful. I just wanted to read a quote quickly from Chris Redmond of Tung sure. Fu, who's um, performing at Medbury uh, next week. Uh, just, just very much speaking to what Rob said. Um, so Chris is going to be reading a poem by Emmanuel Asrat, who's an Eritrean writer who um, was arrested 15 years ago and has yet to be charged. Uh, there's very little information about where he is or what his situation is. Um, and Chris says, I feel humbled and privileged to be reading a poem by Emmanuel Asrat as part of Poetry's protest at Glebury Poetry Festival. To share my writing is a freedom I enjoy and take for granted. To read someone else's work out loud who has had that freedom taken away from them feels both simple and terribly important. We can be voices for each other. We can now um, hear one of those performances from the uh, Modern Literature Festival. It's, um, we heard Ashraf Fayad, or at a couple of removes at the start of the podcast. And this is Andrew McMillan's response to Ashraf Fayad. I found this incredibly difficult, um, and I think a lot of the other writers did too. Just confronted by my own privilege, I guess, and kind of how easy I have it um, to write the sort of stuff that I do. Um, in contrast, Ashraf Fayad was sentenced to death um, for some of the stuff that he wrote that got reported in Saudi Arabia. That death sentence was later commuted to eight years in prison and 800 lashes, which are to be given in 16 separate punishment sessions. Um, so I took that number 50 um, from one of those sessions and considered everything that I'd done or taken for granted just this week um, that would have otherwise got me in trouble <coughs> in another country. Um, and I took the structure of ten sections from Ashraf's great disputed poems, the poems that kind of got him into trouble. Ashraf's work is incredibly funny, um, incredibly moving, um, and very politically charged as well in some cases, but oftentimes just about love um, as well. And so this is what I um, attempted to write in response to that situation, just trying to say, well, this is what I did this week, and I'm still here, and I'm still all right. It's not the same elsewhere in the world. And all I think we can do for writers like Ashraf, like all the writers today, that we're hearing about today, is just keep saying their names out loud. And that means they won't be forgotten. That means that we might remember them and keep supporting them. So it's called A Week of Living Blasphemously. And it opens with a quote from um, one of Ashraf's disputed poems. I directed my face at the warmth of your arms. I got no love but you, you alone. And I'm the first of your seekers. One. Forgive me, I am in love with a Catholic. I myself have no religion. Whilst my boyfriend was at church, I had two glasses of wine in my underwear. When he came home, I pretended I'd been polishing the door fronts of the cupboards. Two. Forgive me, I do not call my mother enough. I got into the car and let my mother drive me to the station yesterday. When we go shopping, I'm always trying to get her to try on nice things, accept her wants, as well as her needs. Three, I encouraged a friend to leave her husband. I told her that being safe or being free were not two different handles on the same jug, that there was a choice. And what of the vow we make to the self, to always be honest? For I just finished a new novel about a man who picks up a rent boy in a toilet, falls in love with him, leaves him, and ends up with syphilis. 
I lent it to a friend and wrote a review of it, encouraging others to read it as well. Five. On Wednesday night, my boyfriend came home from spin class and hadn't been bothered to change out of his shorts. He spent the evening reading fashion magazines where often naked women are draped in expensive fabric for the purposes of consumerism. Six. I took my boyfriend out for a meal, held his hand as we walked past a group of football-charged blokes, bought the third most expensive bottle of wine to feel extravagant. Let's get dressed up, I'd said. The food was that kind that's all deconstructed. <laughs> Seven. My boyfriend chose some black crop trousers and a kilt or skirt over the top to emulate a look he'd seen at Paris Fashion Week. Back at the flat, he deconstructed the outfit, turned each piece inside out, built a dirty washing pile. Eight. I was too much of a coward to keep watching the TV. Sometimes in bed, at night, I wondered what it would be like to be someone who did not officially exist, from a country which did not have the right to call itself a country. Nine, sometimes in bed, at night, I list the things that would have made me illegal, my ink, which I would not cover, white wine, men, my lack of faith, my book collection. I am circumcised though, that inch of cut off flesh means I am clean and could be potentially good. <laughs> Ten, Ben, I would declare my love for you Four times, if asked. But do not think I am a martyr to my heart. I am weak from privilege. I have not endured. I am impulsive, sweating shame and doubt. I could renounce you in an instant to save myself. Thank you. You can hear all the, um, or you can see all the poems um, performed at the Modern Literature Festival um, if you go to youtube.com slash Poetry. And yes, well worth checking out. There are lots of really good poems. Um, I think the one you're talking about, which you ha um, had your rolling on the fourth, that was Harry Mann's poem, yeah. wasn't it? Was, um, yeah, which really needs to be seen to be experienced, so I won't um, talk about it here. But yes, also, quite something. In very good news, the case that he was uh, paired with has subsequently been released. And actually, we did see that over the course of, from when we first uh, assigned cases to the writers here in the UK, uh, there was actually quite a lot of development in some of those cases. Um, a case we have in Cuba has finally been... He was offered a scholarship at Harvard University several years ago, and now due to the opening up between relations between the US and Cuba, he's, I think it's seven years ago he was offered it, he's finally went to take it up. Another case of ours, a Qatari poet who was in prison, um, originally sentenced to death, or life imprisonment, um, was released just shortly before the festival then. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it really does, it does work. Um, because we know that the authorities observe these protests 
the reason we know that, especially in the case of Mohammed Al-Ashmi uh, in the Qatar, was because they were photographing us from the embassy while we were lurking outside it. Um, and uh, another uh, poet, Tim Keeley, was, was reading uh, Mohammed Al-Ashmi's uh, blistering poem uh, against the, the Qatari regime uh, right opposite the, the embassy in Mayfair. And then a few a few days later, Alajmi was was released. Now it's not just that one act. Um, we work with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, in the case of Mohammed Alajmi, uh, on on those kind of demos. Index on censorship, Article Nineteen, um, uh, Reporters Without Borders, Committee to Protect Journalists, <laughs> um, and and it's this. Um, all these groups with, with perhaps you know a, a slightly different focus. I don't think any organisation has the literary focus that Penn does, um, but we we're we're all hammering on that door uh, metaphorically, <laughs> not actually <laughs> um, bashing down the door of any any embassy. Um, but uh, we're all keeping the these people. Uh, in the in the public eye and and signalling to the embassy that and to the government of of these regimes that um, that these people are remembered um, that we're going to to hold them to any domestic laws um, and and due process and also at any opportunity we're going to link. Uh, these human rights abuses to trade, to culture. Um, in Azerbaijan, for example, we've been um, working with activists um, who are, are trying to raise awareness uh, around around various uh, sporting events um, and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we we keep at it and we keep being noisy and we keep reading those poems and those those uh, those passages from novels where we can uh, yes yeah, signaling to the government that they are that we haven't we know what they're doing and very often it's just easier for them to to release the the poet or the journalist or the the, the dissident in question rather than have to to answer awkward questions um, and yeah, the number of times a release happens soon after some kind of, of, of demonstration uh, or protest um, makes me think that there is a there is a correlation, um, and it's certainly worth uh, yeah people becoming involved, becoming activists, um, and showing solidarity with these people because um, on many many levels it it works. Yeah, and I think even in cases where you don't see an obvious impact we're, we're very clear that this kind of support so for example the vigils that we hold for Ashraf Fayyad and Moif Badawi outside the Saudi embassy every single month they mean a huge huge amount to them and their families who at this stage both been in for more than four years they've tried so many different avenues his wife Ensa Fayyad who's completely remarkable has spoken to politicians at every level in every country, she's she's still working her socks off, but there's there's so few ways of knowing what to do at this stage and I think this kind of support is is really crucial for them just to just to keep them going. Um, so whether or not the government's paying attention, the Saudi 
embassy has referred to us as meddling foreign entities, but other than that hasn't bothered to reply to any letters, which is not unusual. But um, but I think the the real key thing is every every time that we're there, we're taking photographs, we're tweeting them, we're tagging Ensaf and Rafe, and they've seen these, they're seeing it, and I think that's it's just so important. So I'd encourage everyone to come to those vigils as well. They're on the usually on the final Friday of the month. Are there any um, are there any other things which you would recommend our listeners do if they want to get involved? I would certainly recommend that they join English Pen. Uh, the price per year uh, is is fifty pounds, which works out um, at the cost of uh, well, I was going to say a couple of beers or a couple of glasses of wine, but with with inflation and in the big cities like London it's only only a glass of wine every month um, so yeah you can join as a member, member for £50 um, if you are under 26 it's only £15 10, uh, 10. oh I beg your pardon um, and uh, <laughs> that's probably off my stride um, and we do we do need that support. It's very useful to have that membership base of people subscribing every year to support our work. Um, so a, a very good way to to show solidarity with writers is to become a member of English Pen. We are there are other ways to engage with us. Of course, we have Facebook uh, groups for our translation project. Our, Outreach projects, our public events, and our rights at risk work that uh, the cat runs. So, uh, following us on Twitter as well, um, retweeting our stuff, spreading the word, um, all of that is very helpful. Um, I certainly recommend going to have a look at our website. There's always an opportunity to sign a petition or to to write an angry letter, or if you're a poet, maybe you could write an angry haiku or something. Uh, to uh, <laughs> the Saudi embassy or, or a government that is, that is uh, abusing free speech. Uh, also, uh, a- activities uh, aimed at our own government as well. A big part of English Pen's work is keeping free speech strong here in the UK so that we're not accused of being hypocrites uh, when we campaign abroad. It's very important that we hold ourselves to exactly the same standards that we would uh, any other country, um, which means defending um, free speech, even for for unpleasant people who might say offensive things. Um, it's also important to defend the free speech of, of journalists uh, who might be writing in the public interest and getting threatened with uh, libel or, or privacy injunctions. Um, and indeed, some journalists even get get spied upon by the security services. Um, and when that happens, we we oppose that, and uh, we're even involved in the uh, campaign against the the new Snoopers Charter, um, which does threaten free speech by threatening people's privacy. Um, if you if you if people are looking over your shoulder. Um, that that does affect freedom of expression, your your, your freedom to write if you know you're being watched. Um, so yeah, there's lots of UK campaigns to get involved in um, as well. Um, you can come and see us at any one of our events, uh, like Ledbury, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, and then the stuff that we're really excited about is this this kind of creative literary engagement 
Um, you don't need to come to our offices in London for that. Um, you can uh, work it into your uh, creative practice uh, wherever you happen to be. We also, just to mention, we have a network of student pen centres uh, at universities across the UK. So as well as joining pen for the bargain price of £10 if you're under 26, um, you can check out our website if, know if there's already one at your university, uh, this is whether you're a student or a lecturer or a professor. Um, and if not, then get in touch and we'd be very happy to work with you while setting one up. Um, great. Just about one thing I was um, going to ask. Obviously, as you mentioned, you do do a lot of work within, well, being English pen specifically within England, and obviously, they say there are branches in various other countries as well. But you're probably best known for um, your international work. Do you find it a hard sell or a harder sell than perhaps it has been in the past, given that I think Britain has generally had a fairly difficult relation with translated texts, with um, writers from abroad and certainly if recent events or anything to go by we are possibly becoming more insular um, has, mm. has that been a problem? There's uh, everyone for many years everyone has talked about this sort of apocryphal 3% of, of literature published in English is literature in translation um, I say apocryphal um, I, I think it's, it's a very old statistic um, I don't think it's been updated but uh, when I mean, we talk to to publishers and, and booksellers who who do say that actually um, the the public have quite an appetite for for translated fiction, and of course some of the most popular work in recent years, and thinking of something like uh, Stieg Larsson um, and, and his books, uh, are works in in translation. So the reader. What we, we've learnt, um, and our, our team running the Writing Translation Programme have, have researched this um, and looked into this uh, quite extensively, uh, and what they've found is that readers um, really don't care uh, <laughs> what language the book was, was written in, so long as it's a good book when they, when they pick it up. Um, and I think people you know, like reading... Uh, about uh, the exotic books from from far away and finding uh, finding something in common with those those authors who might be living on the other side of the world. So yeah, I think there was there was perhaps a sense um, among publishers um, a, a few years ago uh, an assumption uh, that translation is in some way too hard. Uh, and that readers didn't want it or would be turned off by it. But um, yeah, our experience um, over the last um, 10, 10 or 11 years of running our translation programme uh, is that that really isn't the case. Um, and all you need to do is to present good literature to, um, uh, to the readers and, and, and they will respond. Um, in, in very recently, uh, with the Man Booker International Prize, um, two English pen supported titles, uh, Tram 85 and a, a General Theory of Oblivion, uh, were on the long list. Um, and a General Theory of Oblivion was on the short list as well. Uh, so these are books that might not have even found their way into the English language um, that uh, have been supported, uh, the translation costs have been supported uh, by pen. So we're particularly uh, pleased with that. Of course, 
yeah, there's always you know the publishing industry itself is is um, is always uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to say it's it's it's, it's embattled, but um, there are pressures on on the publishing industry, and like any business, um, publishers will will go with what works and what makes them the most money. So you might find that the well-known, um, uh, celebrated authors uh, will, you know, their next book will always sell. Uh, um, they'll always get commissioned to write another one uh, because uh, the because publishers know that they can sell it. Um, they can sell these superstars, and the concern is that if there's a if there's a recession, if there's a downturn, if publishers are, are squeezed by um, uh, by, by changes in the, in the in the business or sort of economic environment, um, and there's less money available for publishing, then the things that will get spiked first of all might be the radical new voice, um, or the the diverse voices from overseas. Um, so yeah, part of our job is 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 lobbying the publishers and reminding them just how how good um, international uh, literature is and trying to frame it and present it to them uh, in a way to say, hey, this is a, this is a way you can make more money. <laughs> Look at this, this slightly, you know, perhaps untapped pool of talent that exists all around the world. Um, why, not, uh, why not dip your toe in that ocean? Um, and, and obviously there are some fantastic publishers who, who only do translated um, fiction. The the, uh, the bigger publishers have have imprints that, that just do that. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, in uh, over the last decade, um, yeah, our colleagues on the translation program have, have seen um, translation become uh, literary translation, work in translation become more popular, um, which is you know, all, all, all to the good. Hooray! <laughs> long long may it continue. Thank you. Well. Um one thing that um, we can all do, as well as um, looking to get involved with the various things that English Pen are doing, is to try and um, read these works where we can um, and where we come across them. And so with that in mind, I'm going to read um, a final poem by the Chinese poet Liu Jia. Um, this was um, she's currently under house arrest in China. Um, and this poem was written for her husband, Lu Xiaobo, who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and is currently serving an 11-year sentence um, in China on a charge of subversion. This poem is called June 2nd, 1989. It was translated by Mingdi and Jennifer Stern, um, and you can find it on the um, website of American Pen. This isn't good weather, I said to myself, standing under the lush sun. Standing behind you, I patted your head, and your hair pricked my palm, making it strange to me. I didn't have a chance to say a word before you became a character in the news, everyone looking up to you as I was worn down at the edge of the crowd, just smoking and watching the sky. A new myth, maybe, was forming there, but the sun was so bright I couldn't see it. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, then go along to englishpen.org or worldbookshelf.englishpen.org 
links to both of those websites and the translated works of both Ashraf Fayyad and Lu Jar can be found in the description section below uh, wherever you're listening to this as usual um, yeah and also don't forget you can get updates and info about the podcast via our Facebook page uh, which is Luke Poetry Podcast on Facebook or on our Twitter account which is at silent underscore tongue thanks for listening